Hello. Before we get started, I want to draw your attention to some links in our show notes. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you enjoy what you hear today, please subscribe at phantompod.org slash subscribe or in your podcast app of choice. If you're already a fan of the show, please consider joining our new Patreon. You'll get access to our exclusive patrons-only feed where you will get recommendations for reading and listening and things to do from our guests. You'll get bonus episodes and other perks. Options start at just $3 a month, and until October 31st, new patrons get a Phantom Power sticker. That URL is patreon.com slash phantompower. And finally, please give us a five-star rating in your app of choice, or maybe even write a review. We've made this super easy to do. You just go to ratethispodcast.com slash phantom. All right, let's get to it. This is Phantom Power. The world is not coherent with itself. There's no single world. Any theorizing needs, I think, to start by acknowledging that. And welcome to another episode of Phantom Power, where scholars and artists and musicians tell stories about sound. I'm Mac Haygood, and my guest today is David Cicchetto, someone who qualifies as a scholar and an artist and a musician, but he draws on his musical and artistic skills in a very unusual way, creating what he calls engagements, these strange sonic experiments that help him and his students understand the nature of our computer-driven lives. David Cicchetto is professor of digital critical theory in the Department of Humanities at York University in Toronto. He's also director of the graduate program in social and political thought there. He's president of the Society for Literature, Science and the Arts, or SALSA. He wrote the book Humanesis, Sound and Technological Posthumanism back in 2013, and he's co-authored and edited several other books. David is one of those people that I just love having a beer with and talking to because he is such an unorthodox thinker. And so I asked him to have this off-script conversation with me, an extended chat just about his new book entitled Listening in the Afterlife of Data, available from Duke University Press. This is a book about the eternal impossibility of true communication and the texture of that impossibility in our current computer-mediated age. David says we live in the afterlife of data, by which he means we know that our data-driven representations of the world don't really capture the reality of our inner and outer lives. And we know that algorithms perpetuate injustices of all sorts, and yet we still live our lives as if we did believe in the data. And this is where his engagements come in, these strange sonic experiments that help David and his students confront the distortions and fallacies and textures of a data-driven life. If you walk into David's classroom, you might find people wearing elaborate prostheses that simulate having a thousand foot wide head or gadgets that swap your ears so that the left ear hears what the right ear hears and vice versa. 
If you're already feeling a little confused and weirded out, welcome to the counterintuitive world of David Cicchetto. <laughs> I've wanted to have him on the show for a long time. His work is kind of hard to put into a succinct narrative, however, so that's why he's our first guest in what we're calling our off-script episodes. No script, no music, no sound design, just a lengthy and I think fascinating conversation with David about his ideas and practices. And for our patrons, there's an extended version of our interview, complete with some outstanding recommendations for reading, listening, and doing that David has. You can get access to that at patreon.com slash phantompower. Two final notes about this interview. Number one, we will be using a central term in David's book, in communication. That's just one word, I-N-C-O-M-M-U-N-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. Did I do that right? <laughs> Second, we did this interview over the internet and David's voice gets a little glitchy at times, which is a lovely sonic example of the incommunication that we're going to be talking about. But I do apologize nonetheless. Okay, here's my interview with David Cicchetto. David, welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Love the podcast. Use it all the time in my teaching as well as for my personal enjoyment. Oh, man. Thank you. That's great to hear because I think you're really one of the most original thinkers who are working at this intersection between sound and, and media theory right now. I feel like you have really interesting ideas about these things that are, that are challenging and fun. So I'm looking forward to getting into this with you. Your new book listening in the afterlife of data aesthetics pragmatics and in communication definitely follows its its own sort of line of of pleasure and and curiosity and it the book opens with this question how might we listen to computers in their incommunicative profiles <laughs> which you know i i had to read several times just right there and but then in the next sentence you kind of admit that this is an obscure question and that you're interested in asking obscure questions because a lot of the questions that we ask in a scholarly setting the answer is already kind of built in and so we're we're if i'm if i'm reading you correctly we're more almost like following an algorithm to get to the desired preordained answer rather than really thinking outside again of these certain kinds of boundaries. So you set up this kind of strange question <laughs> and it requires you and it's going to require us to kind of unpack little by little what that question means. And then maybe by the end of getting to what this question means, we will have in, in some way answered it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, that's great. <laughs> uh, no, I, I like that. And, you know, I think there is, this is the thing about disciplines, right? Is that Part of the reason why interdisciplinary is so important because the methods that disciplines use do script in advance what the what they're going to find, you know. And so I I really like that as a way of, of as a way of framing this obscure question. And I'll say I do love obscure questions, and I yeah. think that question is actually in some ways there's a really simple idea of what it means, which is just computers are actually really weird things, and there's a lot that of how they actually work, how a specific computer is working in a specific instance that's actually incredibly strange, inconsistent, you know, unreliable, all those sorts of things. Lots of scholars have pointed this out. But then it's really hard to think about them and not just see them as kind of 
formal technical tools. So the question of how to listen to them in their incommunicative profiles is sort of how do we, how does one stay in touch with the strange things that computers are doing? You know, uh, the idea is that computers are doing something other than what we're told that they're they're doing. So some of what they're doing is being done on individual computers. Some of what they're doing is being done by virtue of the kinds of communication that they make seem natural, right? So, so, yeah. so we might say, we might describe computers as communication technologies, but what idea of communication are we actually building when we do that? This form of asking the question is actually pretty familiar at this point, I think. So for example, you know, many people today are asking, what is policing actually doing under the guise of keeping people safe, right? And of course, the answers are that policing maintains the racialized, gendered, ableist, and otherwise power inequities that are part and parcel of the times and places that I'm living in. I don't know about you. I would, mm -hmm. I would guess so. Yeah. So this is not to say that no individual cop never keeps somebody safe, right? And in the same way, it's not to say computers never help us communicate. We're doing this by computer right now. But it's to say that you know, a certain policing itself is also doing something else. And a certain kind of computers themselves, in addition to being these sort of communication technologies, are also doing something else. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how can we actually tune into that? And not in a way that makes it a done deal, say, well, they also do this, but actually what they're doing is dynamic and, and lived and part and parcel of all the ways that our cultures are always changing. And so, you know, how do we sort of approach the questions of computation so that so that's something else that computers are doing maybe we can we can start picking away at this something else and and this this term that you use in communication so in communication you draw on on a book that i have cited a lot of people have cited because it's just such a fantastic book john durham peters speaking into the air and that's a book that talks about how there's an impossibility that's kind of built into com communication that is also our the basis of our desire to communicate, right? And, and you talk about in your introduction how this relates to two fields that were hugely important in the 20th century, uh, psychology and computer science. So maybe could we talk just a little bit about, about that? Because it, I think it gets at the root of something that the human mind and computers maybe have in common. So yep. yeah, maybe we can start there. No, that's nice. That's really nice. I mean, I think the key for understanding the impossibility of communication, which, you know, you're right. It's, it's a, it's a big part of information technology, this idea, it's a big part of psychology. It also is a big part of, you know, religious hermeneutics. It's a big mm -hmm. part of the way that artists talk about communication. So actually it's one of these things that sticks to the concept of communication pretty regularly in all sorts of different ways. But you're right, in the book, I'm sort of focusing on those two, or at least gesturing towards those two. And so the key is that communication is both unavoidable and impossible. And that those two things happen at the same time. I know that's an obscure way of saying that, but it's, if you think about from a psychological perspective, right? On one hand, we can't help but communicate constantly, right? If you're in a group of people, you are communicating, right? You are, whether you're speaking or not, we're giving off all sorts of signs and signals and ways that we, you know, people know all, all the ways that this happens. In some ways, what psychology is, is 
you know, partially what it's doing is trying to decipher how that works, how people communicate those things. At the same time, though, the impossible part is that for psychology to make sense, I have to have a sense of my psyche, me being different from your psyche, you, right? We have to have some sense of interiority, right? There's this, this is me and I'm going to express, I'm going to take the me that's inside and express it, make it outside to communicate an idea to you. And the point is, and the reason why it's impossible to sort of fully communicate is because I can't ever, even the simplest idea, I can't move from inside of myself to outside of myself to inside of you with in a complete way or else there would be no distinction between inside of myself and outside of myself right right if i if i say i want a piece of toast the, the i there the me referring to myself means that there has to be something about that that i didn't express to you right something about who i am so psychology is built on this and in, as peter's sort of notes in passing maybe this is actually what psychology builds as well, this theory mm -hmm. of communication. So, you know, the uh, you know the book is kind of saying, well, okay, that's great and that's true. So, how does that actually change in different settings? And one of the other settings where communication is unavoidable and impossible is in information theory, which, as you know very well, <laughs> probably better than me, uh, you're, the foundational idea of information theory, there's one way of describing you've got a message that goes through a channel and arrives at a destination. Uh, and of course, that channel, the, the medium, always um, introduces noise to the message. And many media theorists have said, well, actually, the noise means that nothing ever arrives at its destination exactly as it was at its source, but it also, in some ways, the noise is the is the thing that allows those to the source and the destination to connect. So it has to be changed. So it's in, it's unavoidable informatically. You know, two things as soon as they're connected, they're in some sense communicating. Um, but there, it's also impossible because there could be no such thing as a message if something were fully communicated. Um, yeah. So this, this, maybe it, that's clear. <laughs> I think that's clear. I mean, it, it's like, yeah. it's, so the impossibility of ever truly knowing the other or ever truly knowing the self is sort of the basis of psychology and the impossibility of a noiseless transmission is the basis of computer technology. Like Claude Shannon was working at AT&T. He develops this, you know, information theory because he's trying to eliminate noise from the phone lines at AT&T. And yet that noise is also integral to those phone lines. So it's, it's this unavoidable problem, um, but it's a very generative problem. You know, it, it, we've, we've come up with all kinds of theories of the self and of, of information and of computers because of this extremely generative problem that you give us a really terrific name for, I think, which is incommunication. And, the, the gloss that I would put on this term in communication, and then you can kind of fill this out or correct me where I've, I don't have it right, is, is that you're pushing this realization that noise and miscommunication aren't just these little moments of breakdown in what would otherwise be a clean process of information that or, or communication that actually 
in communication is central to the process of communication itself and our inability to communicate and all of these moments where the communication goes awry is what produces the feeling and the texture of our everyday communication with one another. Is that, is that kind of? Yeah, I think that's totally fair, right? I guess the key thing I'd say is very little of our seemingly communicative actions are actually explained by the way that communication is, at least in a you know, day-to-day way, talked about, right? If we think about, if we talk about communication as an exchange of information, as me passing an idea to you and you pass an idea back to me, that actually explains very, very little of, of what we're doing as we are unavoidably constantly communicating, right? So even if we just restrict ourselves to, to speech, yeah. right? Never mind all the bodily and affective things, right? There's lots of communication that is in speech, but even if we just restrict ourselves to speech, if most of us were to record all the things we say in a day, this idea of like, like most of it would not be explainable through the way we talk about communication, you know, not, and this again, it's not even just talking to ourselves or talking to our cats and things like that. But also if, for example, I go to the coffee shop, right? I start telling the barista about everything I'm going to do that day. I'm going to go for a bike ride, get some groceries to read for a while, you know, grade, whatever. The actual exchange wouldn't be the content of what I'm saying, right? It would be the weirdness of this middle-aged guy giving way too much information to this poor barista <laughs> who is forced by the kind of the sort of exchange or, or having to have a job, basically, yeah. to sit there and kind of listen to it and, and be polite, right? And actually, even the exchange of coffee for money isn't, in many cases, really that, right? Because I go to the coffee shop for something other than just coffee, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding communication as information exchange is ridiculous. It's just totally inadequate, right? But it still matters that that's what we seem to be doing, right? So it, this is the kind of key, I think, that in communication gets at. Okay. Is it still matters that I seem to be communicating. That's what allows these more complex, weird interactions that are always happening to sort of continue to take place or not what allows them, but it's what frames their, the ways that they take place. I can give an example if you like. Yeah. Yeah. Give an example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm um, just sitting here actually, mulling this over, but yeah, give me, yeah, yeah, give me another yeah. example. I like the way that you explain this actually in the piece you did for real life mag, where you give the example of emojis, right? Which uh-huh. respond to the sort of impossibility of truly knowing other people's emotions through text. And in doing so, they give us this new texture for communicating. And I think people feel this. If you just imagine, you know, the difference between writing a letter, writing an email or texting, one of the things you get with texting is like you can send emojis or, or gifts or that sort of thing. And the key is it's not, it's not, nobody would say that an emoji is more precise, right? But it, it's different. It feels different. It changes in turn how we feel when we are doing that. Or one that gets talked about a lot is the like function in social media. Nobody would say that liking something on Twitter or hearting it, I guess, Uh is the same as saying, I like to eat vegetables, right? Like the word, the like isn't, doesn't mean the same thing, but it takes on its own sort of texture of, of kind of crafting a certain kind of connection that we, we know what it means, but we also we can't kind of quite explicate what it means. And what it means is kind of also change, always changing based on how it gets used, right? I don't, I think maybe that's- Yeah, a, yeah, that's so, so okay, so the, the yeah, the, the emoji example, it's like, I can't know what tone of voice you were using in a text message for sure. 
and the emoji, you know, that you, you give me an emoji, it gives me a little bit, oh, okay, that was a joke. That gives me a little bit more. And yet that's still never quite enough, right? But, but the fact that we couldn't communicate created this new form of communication, the emoji, and that becomes part of the texture. And now that's part of the norm of communication. So this, the in-communication is always producing new forms of communication. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And, or even, I mean, what I like to think about it is with the word alibi. So if you think about an, what is an alibi, if, I, if I'm asked to give an alibi for a bank robbery, right? What mm -hmm. I'm saying is I'm giving proof that I wasn't there, right? I'm, I'm saying, look, when the bank was being robbed, I was with my cat and my cat will attest to that. And, you know, which is the other interesting thing about who gets to provide an alibi. So let's say I'd stand up with my friend who, who might be a more reliable witness for the police than my cat. <laughs> so I give an alibi. But the thing about an alibi is it also proves or suggests your implication in this in the scenario that you're saying you weren't part of, right? So who has to give an alibi under what conditions? Why would I be asked by the police in general where I was during this bank robbery, right? The, the fact of the alibi proves I wasn't there, but it's but it's still different than having never had to give an alibi at all. Right. right. All the, all the thousands of people who are not, not even called in to quite to be questioned in that way. So I think and communication kind of functions in the form of an alibi, right? It, it's sort of our way of explaining, well, this isn't quite what I'm saying, yeah. but we're here together, not quite saying this stuff together. Okay. So, so I think that unpacks the incommunicative profiles piece of our question, our opening question, how might we listen to computers in their incommunicative profiles? So maybe we can get deeper into the computer aspect. And then we'll talk about your experiments in listening to computers, which I find fascinating. So your idea here is that data today is our primary or data are our primary medium of incommunication. And you have this line that I really like, a computational perspective hallucinates an idea of information as something that would remain unchanged as it moves between contexts, such that data can be raw, pure, and fundamentally unrelational. So th this is a, this abstract notion of, of data as something portable that remains the same in any context is one that I've, I've kind of been fascinated with in my own work. So I'd like to hear more about this perspective of data. Like where does this come from historically and, and, and why are you so concerned with it in this book? Yeah, that's great. I, I'll just say really quickly first, the word hallucinates is important there because, you know, Sometimes when people hear hallucinates, they think, oh, it's it's not real. And that's true, right? Because data is not raw, pure, unrelational. I mean, there, nothing is, right? Everything is is the opposite of those things. Yeah. But you know, it's like when you wake up from a dream. Let's say you, you dreamt you had a fight with your partner, right? You know it's a dream. You know it's not real, but you still wake up a bit pissed, right? Yep. And you're still like, how could this so that's the kind of key thing about how data hallucinates these things is that even though it's not real, it could still feel that way. Even like, you know, I feel like I've spent more time than most people thinking about this and it still feels that way. Right. So the question of where it comes from, I mean, this is a total cliche. 
I don't think I could be the academic I am without falling into this cliche. Obviously, it comes from liberal capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, think about it. It it's, would be totally sensible for me to say to you that I decided not to try out the nice new restaurant in my neighborhood because I'm going to, I want to buy a new bicycle, right? So when I say that I am taking a bicycle and a meal and kind of making them exchangeable with one another, right? They're totally and completely different things that are exchangeable for one another. And that's wild. Like it's worth, it's worth staying in touch with that. And computers build on that, right? And lots of people have talked about hmm. computers as being sort of metamedial where they allow comparisons of data between things that are unrelated. So, you know, it makes sense in 2022 to say that a movie is bigger than a song, right? Because the file is bigger. Like if, I, if I'm going to download a song or download a movie, I'll say, yeah, no, the movie's bigger. Of course, you know, the question of size with a movie is not, not really a <laughs> sensible one. And it's not also with the song, but somehow computers bring those things and make them exchangeable with one another. Yeah. Now, that much is, I think, kind of obvious, but one phrase that I suggest my students listen for and that I try to listen for myself that shows the kind of more subtle ways that this happens is the phrase at the end of the day, right? Because hmm. most times you hear that phrase, you're about to hear someone try to convince you hmm. of some kind of equivalence that is hallucinated, right? And again, that doesn't mean it's not active and powerful and doing real things, but it's not it's not a fact. So a politician might say, as someone just did here in Toronto, yes, I think that everyone deserves to be housed. But at the end of the day, that's the key. You're like, ding, ding. at the end of the day, that would have to be paid for by taxes that people you know, aren't willing to pay. So uh -huh. you know, this makes an equivalence between somehow like my tax rate and somebody being able to be housed. And mm -hmm. actually, this is why housing activists insist on housing as a right, because the discourse of rights at least suggests that there might be something outside of this exchangeability. So the thing is that this way of thinking just permeates everything, right? It's so hard to hold on to the, the qualitative differences, the differences of kind or of texture amidst this kind of constant quantitative impulse, right? In, in philosophy, they have this, this idea of the trolley pro problem, where basically you yeah. decide, is one person going to die or a bunch of people to die? And that trolley problem, as many people say, is like a, you know, it's the false framing of how we live in the world. And it's, but it's really hard. It's so seductive. Yeah. And, and just to kind of conclude this informatic perspective, which I think is, you know, capitalism has a whole other way, other things it's doing about exploiting labor and, and you know, all of that. I think today we live, of course, still under capitalism, but I think that this informatic perspective, calling it informatic perspective rather than a capitalist perspective, really gets in touch with the, the role that data or information specifically plays, which is slightly different. And it's important that it doesn't just fail to capture reality, it creates realities that perpetuate injustices, right? So this is, this is the point about any failure of communication is that it's always also doing something else. So if you think about the way that standardized testing, right, crafts intelligence and education as, you know, in ways that perpetuate race, class, ability, and gender-based biases, the problem isn't just that these tests are designed in ways to make some folks more likely to succeed and others to fail, although, of course, that's true too, but also that the very existence of the tests conceptualizes intelligence as a question of data, as a question of measurement, right? Which is a, anyone who's 
spend any time with other people knows that's an impoverished understanding of what intelligence is, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So standardized tests, or actually grades in general, grades are like highly incommunicative things. Standardized tests incommunicate. They prescribe a set of values under the alibi of describing what they're measuring, right? And yeah, maybe I'll just leave it there. So I think that's where computers enter into this question of incommunication. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm hearing you say that our current mode of incommunication in our, in our present moment is, is data. That's the, sort of the, the, the prominent mode of incommunication. Data comes out of this, you know, what you describe in the book is a, a white patriarchal capitalist individualism and and that that kind of thinks of in individual thought as property as thinks of as the individual more important as being more important than the community and 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 kind of functions around this kind of exchangeability that you've described which it allows us to equate things that don't sensibly equate with one another and then one of the the, the points that I think maybe you haven't highlighted yet in, in that is you, you talked about how data becomes an alibi for like, for classism or racism or ableism. And you gave that standardized test example, but even if we doubt the data, we don't believe that alibi, somehow we can't really overcome it. Um, so can you talk about that? Because it, it seems like you, you you say in the book that critiquing the data isn't enough or the way the data are arranged is 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 not enough. So can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. My favorite, you know, this might be slightly apocryphal, but I, I heard several years ago about a, a study that suggested that placebos work even when you know you're in the control group <laughs> right. given you know a sugar pill right yeah it, which is an awesome thought it's like cuz you know the way that placebos were always talked about at least in my mind is that you know they work because you think you're being given the medicine right but actually maybe they work just maybe just cuz you're just having somebody pay attention to, i don't know yeah i don't know what the explanation would be for that but yeah. but that seems to be the case and and i you know again i won't if somebody listening says, no, no, that's wrong. I, I won't contest that. Okay. I also won't contest, you know, if somebody wants to insist that psychology is still, you know, <clears throat> as important as information or as important as, as data, that's fine. You know, I'm not, I don't actually need to make a grand historical argument about the role of computers to, to say that they're clearly, you know, saturating our, our daily lives. But what I would say in terms of this placebo effect of data is that, you know, well, actually, there's a there's a scholar named R. Joshua Scannell. He's one of many people who has written about predictive policing, the PredPol technology. And one of the things that he he sort of shows is that so this is a technology that police departments use for all sorts of ways for recidivism, but also to predict where crimes are going to take place. And basically, it it prints out a map that says this is where you know based on all these factors we should have officers with boots on the ground in order to be present because this is where crime is likely to happen today. And, you know, Josh has pointed out that the cops know 
that this technology doesn't work properly. Like right. One of the hilarious things about the technology is the first iterations of it showed that the places where crimes are going to happen are all police stations because, of course, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of crimes of people, vagrants being brought in and they're not actually booked and, until they're in the police station. So it's like suddenly it looks like police stations are these, sign, you know, these sites of crimes. So the cops know that there's all sorts of technical things wrong with the data. They also know that this data is based on prior policing data, right? So they know that, and, you know, Toronto Police Department just issued an apology, probably an empty apology last week, because all of their data shows that, you know, policing is racist, turns out, right? So they know that the data that this is based on, the crimes, the ways that crimes have been policed in the past are informing what crimes will be policed in the future, and that that is biased. The yeah. cops know this, and yet it's still so seductive, because if you know that going to location A is more likely to lead you to be able to intervene, even if you're a nice guy, like even if you're no part of you, no bone in your body imagines yourself to be you know, racist, you still want to be effective at your job. And it's like, well, somebody robbing a convenience store is in one way something that is racialized, but it also in another way is just a crime that if you are a cop, you kind of imagine your, your role to be to stop, right? So, so it's so seductive because in some weird ways, uh, it works. There's a scholar named Soon Ha Hong. He has a, I don't know if you know the book, Technologies of Speculation, mm. I think it's called. It's really, really nice book. Really, really, it's a, it's a weird book, but re really responsibly researched. So I, I envy him that. <laughs> and uh, he says, basically, you know, what's being sold to us with data and what's being sold is not what it allows us to do, but actually, or sorry, what the data will do for us, but rather what it allows us to do in the name of data. And I think that's that kind of seductive thing that happens all the time, right? Just, and you know, and again, it's like everybody knows that IQ tests don't work. Yeah. But I think if I'm being honest, I think if I scored like a 60 on an IQ test, I'd still be disappointed. Right. Right. <laughs> I think I'd, some part of me would be like, is something wrong with me that I'm scoring so low? Right. And this is, and this is where the title of, of your book comes from listening in the afterlife of data you're you're suggesting that we're at this point where we don't naively believe in data anymore and yet they still hold sway over us and the example that you use i love is about dating apps can you just briefly tell us about that one yeah i i like the example too it's if somebody you know let's say I get a 97% match. Now I'm told on most of the apps now it's just it's a different matching system. But back in okay. the day, if you get a 97% match with somebody on on one of these websites, you know, that I don't believe, I don't even know what that percentage means. Right? Right. And, and nobody <laughs> does, including incidentally the dating app company, because part of what they're doing is, you know, they know that increasing that number makes people more likely to pursue and actually may even sort of prime us when we do meet the person to be like, wow, it doesn't feel right, but I got this 97% match, so maybe I just need to give it more time, right? Make, make right. It's more likely to be successful. But nobody knows what it means. Nobody. They, that The person does not exist on the planet who knows yeah. what, like, it is not a sensible number. There's no percentage, you know, percentage is per 100. This is not, you know, this is not a sensible number. Yeah. And yet, it still feels compelling in a way that like a 22% match doesn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's it. That's it in a nutshell, I think. In terms of the afterlife of data, I actually came to this term, afterlife, originally through a scholar named Eugene Thacker, who has a book called Afterlife. But that was 
many years ago, this idea, but it's more closely associated now by far with a really truly brilliant scholar named Sadia Hartman. And Hartman uses the phrase afterlife of slavery to theorize Mm -hmm. how the subjection of black people persists after the legal end of enslavement, Mm -hmm. right? How this perspective, in fact, continues the logics of slavery in, in a contemporary moment. There's actually a really nice book, too, by a fellow named Ronaldo Walcott that takes up, a, I think, a related argument, not exactly the same thing, but under the phrase, the long emancipation. And so that book is making an argument about, about what freedom means after freedom is legally granted to enslaved people. Mm. And you know, his argument is that it's not accomplished yet. So I'm using the phrase afterlife of data in a related way, but obviously slightly differently to describe this cultural moment when the hegemony of data, the way that data organizes our ideas of communication, organizes ideas of power, where it persists, even though we know that you know, most or all of our data is hugely flawed, and even though we know we don't necessarily know what we're talking about when we talk about data, and yet it, it persists as a real organizing principle in our lives. Right. Okay. So I think at this point we have really covered computers and their incommunicative profiles. So I just want to go to the beginning of that sentence now, which is how might we listen to computers in their incommunicative profiles? So why listen to computers? You know, I have a background in music and in sound and the way that I think is almost always through experiments, artworks, engagements, actually trying to activate the yeah, just trying to activate the thoughts. I'm, I'm never, I'm not smart enough to be able to kind of be one of these thinkers who, do, who, who makes a full schematic of their thinking and says, you know, it says, this is how everything in the world works. And, <laughs> you know, logic point A and logic point B connect in this way. And, and now I've explained everything. I tend to be, I, I have to actually think through a problem in its specificity. And for me, that involves often coding or making sounds or testing something in a, in a given setting. So you know, part of it is just listening in that way. I have lots more to say about listening, but listening is the topic on which I become inaccessibly obscure. So I'm, I'm going <laughs> to try to limit myself. <laughs> well, let's, so let's talk about these experiments, or as you call them in the book, you call them engagements. There are several of them in the book. And I would like to just kind of go through each one and have you kind of describe what this engagement was. What did you do with sound? And then what did this highlight for you about our life in the afterlife of data, having gone through this process? And I know some of these are are things that you did with your students. So that, that might be interesting to hear about as well, like how you actually use these techniques and methods either in the classroom or in collaboration with other scholars. Because like I said earlier, like that's one of the aspects of your work that I, I just find so refreshing. So let's talk yep. about this project called Exerbia. What was Exerbia? With Exerbia, it's an old piece. I think basically all of the pieces I'm going to, I talk about in the book are connected in some way to this fellow, William Brent, who, without whom I, you know, he's a professor of audio technology. He helps me a lot through, through the, the particulars of this stuff. Although, you know, I, I do a lot of it myself as well, but Exerbia, we made it and it's basically an online sound editing tool. So it's, it's, 
it's a version of a digital audio workstation like GarageBand or something like that. But it's has four distinct features that make it very weird. Unfortunately, the website is down now. We we made it originally in 2011 and just it would have required full full recoding for contemporary web standards. But but basically, it has four the four things that are distinct about it is that the interface is mostly only in real time. And we think of it as a kind of non-visual interface. So if you want to adjust, say, the volume in a specific section of a piece that you're editing, you have to press play from the beginning of the piece and basically ride the volume knob, knob that you're using, or a slider in this case. And you know, if you wanted to in, it to increase at the one and a half minute mark of the piece, you just wait. And then at the one and a half minute mark, you increase the volume, and then you know that's it. That it, it plays through. So it's real time in that way. The other really wonderful thing is that editing is destructive. So any change you make, you've made a change. It doesn't, unlike in you know, the beauty of GarageBand and all of these and Pro Tools and all of that, is that you, you get the opposite. You have the undo feature. And then also the, 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 the software is made up basically as a sample-based software. So you upload sound samples and then you can manipulate them. But all of the source materials that anyone uploads are shared between everyone. So, you know, if you were to upload a, a, a excerpt from this podcast, then everybody would have access to that excerpt from the podcast. It's actually they're uploaded into a, a limited bank. So, you know, there's like a thousand samples at a given time. So once that bank fills up, then if you upload sample one thousand one, that will overwrite sample one in the in the bank which is the fourth thing because any change to the source material on any individual's computer affects all instances of that source material. So suddenly if sample one had previously been a, a sample of a violin playing a scale and now is me droning on and on, every instance of a violin playing a scale in anybody's piece who's on the Serbia network is now going to be me droning on and on, whatever else they've done to the sample. So it, it, it creates this kind of weird communal editing thing in terms of how it relates to in communication and those sorts of things. I mean, again, part of it is just fun, but also the idea came out of thinking about how you know, both William and I use digital audio workstations, DAWs, like GarageBand, Pro Tools, Reaper, etc. We use them a lot. And, and I was curious how it was impacting how I listen. Right. You probably know this from editing the podcast. You kind of dump your files into one of these things. And there's a bunch of edits you can make before you even listen once. Right. You cut off all the silence at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Maybe you run a tool to eliminate some background noise. You know, all of those sorts of stuff that, that you just kind of, it, 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 it's just part of how you, it's part of what you, we might think of as the visuality of the interface where vision is what we see. Visuality is the sorts of ways of understanding that come about from seeing in certain ways. Yeah. So, after you play around with Exerbia, you're really able to feel a lot of these assumptions that are packed into digital audio workstations. You're able to feel how frustrating it is to have to edit everything in real time, for example. Yeah. <laughs> that that is a, and yet that's something, you know, that you know, musicians, when, when you're working acoustically, you know, you have to kind of plan for that. I mean, you have to, yeah, it's a, it's a real thing. And I will say, yeah. And also the, for me, the most interesting is the question of memory. Because I get on to Exerbia, say I haven't played with it in a month. When I get on, I listen to my piece. There's no record as to how it has been changed by other people's actions. <laughs> so I might be like, ah, I think it sounds different. But actually, I can't be sure whether it's sounding different is just I haven't listened to it in a month 
or whether it's sounding different is, you know, is because somebody else has substituted a sample somewhere in this complex mix of weird stuff I'm making. And that matters because it, it points out that actually part of what these online communities, part of how online communities function is actually through verifying and documenting changes as much as you know what they what they seem to be doing right and yeah many years ago many years ago this guy alexis madrigal was talking about facebook and he said you know what do we get it seems like facebook is the exchange is i give up my privacy or some parts of my privacy in exchange for being able to share material and he says but you know there's all sorts of internet ways to share material before facebook and so he, what he sort of, this is just an article in the Atlantic or something like that. But he says, actually, what you get is a record of having shared, right? You get a kind of a way of documenting and a searchability yeah. and an archive of your connections and your sharing, which is a really different thing. And it's not better, it's not worse, but it's a really, really different thing. So I think Exerbia sort of broadly pulls out some of these weird things that change as we start to think about communal activities or as communal activities happen via visual online visual versions of online networks as opposed to other ways that the internet could connect us for example yeah i think it i think it, this really this project really pulls out that atemporality and abstraction that sort of exists in the way that we handle audio in the computer and that versioning you know in this 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 whole I think it really makes me think a lot about like what, what a file is and that we're taking music, which is this temporal form and we're visualizing it as something atemporal that's just spread out on a screen before us that can be edited in the abstract outside of time, so to speak. And, and all of these commitments that you're forcing people to have, like not being able to go back and and having to edit in real time and, and, and you know, all of these things really highlight the affordances of the computer, but also the strangeness of the affordances of the computer. <laughs> yeah, There's, yeah. And I like that outside of time thought because of course, you know, it's not actually outside of time. Right. this is again one of the kind of hallucinations that we get but it's outside um, the of same way that... musical it's outside of the musical time of the piece yeah which is a place that you can't go when you're playing live music with others like so your creativity comes your creativity doesn't leave the domain of time obviously but it yeah. leaves the domain of the time of the piece of music which is which is an yeah, interesting no, thing to think about all right, well, let's let's talk about another piece that you mentioned in this book. I don't even know if piece is the right word for this, actually. I suppose I suppose an engagement is definitely a better term for it. And I know this is something that you have engaged with students in doing. So the, the label you gave to this was Fathead. So talk about that. So Fathead is a wearable device, which is to say you can put it on and walk around. Again, William helped me with some iterations of this. It's a wearable device. That simulates how things would sound if your head was a thousand feet wide or how things might sound if your head was a thousand feet wide and i chose that distance because you know under neutral quote unquote neutral conditions at sea level sound travels at about a thousand feet per second so you know if you're wearing a fat head and somebody whispers into your left ear the sound will arrive at your right ear you know, assuming it's loud enough to arrive there it'll arrive there a second later it's lots of fun right and also I also designed it as a way to you know, 
for listening to music. So I've spent a lot of time listening to like, uh, you know, just sort of classics, <laughs> things like the Rite of Spring or you know, the Bach Goldberg variations, wearing the fat head and then just sort of turning my head because you get these cool Doppler effects, you know, the, like the sounds that uh, when an ambulance passes by and the siren does that funny glissando thing, you get these cool Doppler effects and it can make it fun, to, you know, can allow you to listen to these pieces again for the very first time. So um, let's, let's, let's just jump yeah. a, a little bit deeper into the, the technology so people can picture this what exactly yep. are folks wearing in order to hear a second of time differential yeah. between their left ear and their right ear and create this this kind of i don't know what would we call it like a like a phenomenological experience of having a thousand foot wide head <laughs> yeah which is you know, awesome if you're also if you're wearing it and you're doing something like playing a piece on the piano, you realize every time you turn your head, you know, of course, you, you have to imagine that you were playing on a thousand foot wide piano as well. But every time you turn your head, you get these crazy Doppler effects and you realize how much your head is involved with playing an instrument as you're playing. But what people are wearing in the kind of most basic version, my, probably my favorite because it's a little bit absurd, are some noise canceling earphones with a iPod that is elegantly taped to the top where the where the two earphones join so atop your head and so in the kind of most basic version it what it has is you can you can press the screen by tapping the top of your head and that will give you it the center point basically and so then as you turn your head to the right or turn your head to the left the software uses the potentiometer in the iPod to register those shifts and it basically then introduces a delay that is in accordance with the amount of the shift. So if I turn my head 90 degrees to the right, then there's, it's triangulated. So it's not exactly 500 feet, but it's basically 500 feet because my, my head is the center point. Um, and likewise, using a adjusted version of the, what's called the inverse square law, which is the way that sound diminishes at a distance, it affects the volume as well. So those are some of the decisions that I made and played around with. If, if you use a kind of pure inverse square law, then you just don't hear as much because, you know, you're, I can't hear somebody talking 500 feet away. So I wanted, you know, I, I played around with that in different ways. I also incidentally tried one with just people walking like, so we found a, a Toronto is, is largely on a grid system. So there are some streets that you can walk in parallel, a person on 500 feet on either side. So we were on different blocks and they were sending wirelessly sending audio. So the person who was writing 500 feet to my right was sending audio to my right ear. And likewise, 500 feet to my left was sending audio to my left ear. So that's a diff that was more, the microphone placement was a thousand feet wide. Yeah as opposed to stimulating and, so, and I was kind of experimenting with moving through the city in that way. But the most basic version is you're wearing basically noise canceling earphones with some kind of receiver device that, that in different ways communicates or, or sorry, different ways that simulates that. I thought of the fat head as a prosthetic initially. And, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time experimenting with prosthetics and I believe in spending time. So, you know, I have, attach microphones to my feet or attach microphones to my hands or reverse my stereo field, things like that and, and walk around. And, and when I do that, I try to spend, you know, say three hours a day, every day for a month or something like that as a way to, to learn it. And I thought of Fathead as part one of these, but what I came to realize, and this is really, really key for the book, is that 
it's way more interesting how it works in or how these sorts of prosthetics work in collective settings. So I had the chance, you know, you were talking about working with students, I had the chance to start teaching the theory stuff that I teach, like the, the contemporary philosophy that I teach, and started teaching seminars where everybody would be around the, the seminar table, there'd be between five and 10 of us typically, um, wearing different prosthetics. So I was wearing a fathead. Sometimes there'd be one or two other people wearing a different version of fathead, but also people were wearing stereo field reversers. reversers. Some people were wearing just things that make you know, them only be able to hear out of one ear, all sorts of weird setups. And then what the seminar, so we're talking about, you know, the thinker we're talking about, say we're talking about Mandy Suzanne Wong's book or something like that, but we are have to do so, we first have to figure out how to relate to one another with this, with our different technical setups. And what you realize is that's always present in a seminar setup. And actually, probably those of us who teach or who have been at school on Zoom for the, you know, during the pandemic, you realize Zoom reconfigures the technical setup of a seminar classroom in a way that means, means we have to learn different sorts of minor gestures and, and little variations and you know, something like making a little joke, which I often do in a classroom, is highly disruptive on Zoom because of the way the audio is managed on Zoom. It cuts out other people's audio. So you have to figure out, you know, people start to do that in the chat, maybe, or those sorts of ways of having sidebars. So in some ways, you know, the fathead experiment sort of reaches maturity as a way of thinking about how knowledge or information is collectively maintained and collectively created rather than this version of information as something that is inside of me that I then put out and then you know I express and somebody takes in so it's a different theory of communication it's one that starts with the with our relational conditions first and the readings we came up with of the philosophical texts the things that seem important were dramatically different from when I've taught those same texts in you know quote unquote, more conventional ways. So that was really the lesson of Fathead for me was, was as a way to think about the relationality of communicative scenarios and to, and to really experiment with tech, texturing them in different ways. Yeah. I love this, this experiment and, and this kind of pedagogical playful experience, you know, of having students using these tools to tease out the embodied nature of knowledge, right? I mean, we're all differently bodied in ways that perhaps are more subtle than a thousand foot wide head or what have you, but but we are always embodied. We're always emplaced. We're in different spaces. There's even a time component, certainly on something like Zoom, but even in, when we're in the same room, there are room reflections and all of these things are contributing to the experience of knowledge generation. And it, none of that can be encapsulated in the idea that information is just this discrete little chunk of knowledge that can just be transmitted from person A to person B. Exactly. And if we're embodied, which we are, <laughs> and if we, <laughs> if we are, if communication is also inevitable, remember it's unavoidable and impossible. That means it, the, the fact that it's unavoidable means we are always collectively embodied as well. So a lot of times when people think of embodied, yes. we think of my body, but actually, yes. as you say, our, our bodies are not only situated, but actually you could say our, our situations are embodied. Um, yeah. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so how were, so, so yeah. what were your course evals like after that? 
first semester <laughs> that you did this? Well, unfortunately, the dirty secret about course evaluations, right, is that they, you know, most of what they depend on is is whether is what kind of grades the students get, and then of right. course they also. So just if you gave good grades, that this was this was ammunition for proving what a fantastic teacher you are, and if 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 exactly. not, then this was a proof of like what a bizarre. Exactly. <laughs> professor yeah, you were. Yeah. And, yeah. And you know, of course I I I benefit from structural advantages of course evaluations as well. We know that they, you know, they disadvantage people of color, they disadvantage women, they certainly disadvantage anyone with an accent. Mm -hmm. All that sort of stuff. Absolutely. So, yeah, as much as I, I will say the students like to do this kind of stuff. Okay. Everything I learned, students like to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. In terms of the evaluation, who knows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't read them either. <laughs> Just... Well, at, at York, actually, you know, at, at my university, it's hilarious because you know, in order to to account for all the ways that they can be biased, there's this whole complex system. But so they often don't get to me until like 18 months later. And so wow. it's like at that point, I can't even remember what I was doing. So they're useless in that way. I really, I might, one of my goals as a teacher is to try to create a classroom environment where students are comfortable saying what they like and don't like yeah. in real time. And actually one of the technical, for those who are teachers out there, I'd love this tip, is I create a course email account so that, and, that, and I give them all the login access so they can email my, my you know, professor's account anonymously. All I know is that somebody from the course, because I get an email from the course email account. So if they have a complaint or a concern or that kind of thing, they can send me an anonymous email if they're not comfortable talking with me about it. So that's that worked really well for me, especially during COVID when you know we're managing all sorts of diverse needs around protocols and stuff like that. That is so cool. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> and I was totally joking about not reading my emails. I, I do read them. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, that, that's amazing. I, I love that. So let's see. Oh, I, I another thing that comes to mind here is that the the course evaluation is a perfect example of the kind of datafication of yes. things that can't be datafied and and perpetuate the inequalities that already exist, right? Exactly. And who is who is the course evaluation for? Right. Yeah. That's what's. That's what, and they are, you know, they exist as data, but they only get called upon in, in sort of cases where something else is afoot. Like if somebody is mm -hmm. in danger of not getting tenure or is in danger of getting tenure and, and the university doesn't want, you know, whatever. But that, those are the sorts of situations where course evaluation, the data is then called forward. But it's, it's not, it's not like it's called up when you have, you know, a, a, it, it, it only it, it's always in service of something else, right? Other than what it appears to be, right? And Absolutely. it's a perfect it's example of one of those things that nobody believes in, and yet everyone believes in, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like reading reviews of your book or your, yeah. or your album. It's like if they're all bad, nobody, everybody knows reviews are biased and all that. But if they're yeah. all bad, it still is depressing. Right. And I admit, if I suddenly started getting you know, bad. One of my one of my students told me they took the class because they looked me up on on rate my professor, and I thought, oh my oh. gosh, I'd never have occurred to me to look at myself on rate my professor. And as I was looking myself up, I realized I thought if I got like a one out of five, I think it's I think it'll bother me. Like I think I think if it was if all if I was consistently poorly rated, even yeah. though I know that you know, I know that it's nonsense. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, let's talk about the third example which is you are you are you know doing these experiments with the fourier integral or sometimes i hear people pronounce it fourier but since 
I'm from New Orleans and you're from Canada. I think we better go with Fourier, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is a, f a fundamental, um, technology that sort of underlies sound being able to work on the internet and in computers. So can you talk about how you've been playing around with that? Yeah. So when you, in some ways it's the, takes the longest to explain, but it's, I think it's not difficult to explain but basically when you digitize sound as many people will know you use this technology for a transform is the technology the integral is the mathematics that underlie it that allows you to record a sound what we might call a composite sound so a, a, comp, a, a sound as a series of component sounds so sort of like how you can analyze the color purple of say a particular flower and then you can analyze that purple as that the composite purple as being made up of the components certain intensities of red and blue, right? And then you can subsequently recreate that by mixing those colors. So when you're recording digital audio at <laughs> what still gets called CD quality, which is hilarious. <laughs> uh, and I always hear it as, at this point, CD quality, like S-E-D-Y. <laughs> yeah. But when you're recording audio at CD quality, basically what, you, what is happening is you're taking 44,100 pictures per second of a sound and each picture contains 16 bits, which is a number, right? A bit is an amount of, of quote unquote information about the frequencies, the component sounds that are present. And then when we play it back, basically it's like a flip book animation. People who did like stick figures in the corners of a book when you're a kid and you, you, know, you do one on each page and then you flip through and it looks like the figure is moving. Um, hmm. So, more than a decade ago, I, I undertook this experiment where I was looking at how these things actually work, you know, in action, if you will, in, in, in a computer. So in theory, you should just be able to send a sound through a microphone into a computer and then it comes out, you know, just like right now I can hear my voice is going into my microphone. It's coming out of my computer and it's quote unquote neutral. I know you have done lots of work. Many people have done lots of work critiquing the notion of fidelity that is built into that. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, that's what I'm trying to get at, but from a technical perspective. But anyway, so what I did, the experiment that I did was just, I took four, I took the same recording and played it through four different Fourier transforms in a room and had it sort of loop back on itself over the course of I said a week, I actually am not 100% sure. It might've been two weeks, but I, I, I said a week in the book, so that's what I'm sticking with. And you know, I did this and fed the digitized audio back again and again and again. And the key thing about these Fourier transforms is that the, you know, they're, remember they're taking these pictures, right? 44,100 times per second at 16 bits. So the rate of sampling, how often it's sampling and the length of each sample which the length of the sample is you know, how long it takes to take the picture, sort of like in a camera. The length of the sample is called the window size. And basically you take the rate, how fast you're sampling and the window size, and that gives you together, those produce what is called the spectrum resolution, which is basically another word for the quality, the measurable quality of the recording. Yeah. Right. So in this case, I had four of these machines recording at the same measurable quality, they were doing so through different ratios of the sampling rate and the length of each sample. So it's sort of at like a student, four students can get all get the same grade on a test, but they can answer specific questions differently, right? So this is giving you the same measurable quality, but doing so differently. 
over the course of the week, the doing this process creates this kind of hum sound. So each of the recordings from the feedback end up sounding more or less like a hum because they, you know, the, the recording was 20 minutes long, approximately. It was actually a noisy piano piece by a guy named Gordon Monahan, interesting Canadian sounders composer, splits time between Canada and Berlin. But so, you know, it ends up at a hum, but the four different Fourier transform setups, each the hum sort of resolved at a different pitch. Right. Huh. So, and, and, and the process of, of it resolving was different. So again, this is sort of what I was saying at the beginning about like, how do we get in touch with the actual processing of a computer? Part of what you're hearing then is the result of each specific computer or you're hearing each the process of each computer sort of working through it. I will say, and this was interesting to me. So, you know, the same measurable, so just to, sorry, to complete that point, the same measurable quality, the same quantity of, of fidelity produced four qualitatively, four different types of sounds, right? So that was interesting because that flies in the face of how, again, this idea that, that of quantity as somehow separate from context and, and just being a strict measurement. What was really interesting to me when I was doing it, and in case there are sound engineers listening, you know, I was given a hard time. And now that I'm older, maybe I can also see this a little bit. But I was given a hard time by, you know, those who sort of police the terrain of computer science. And they said, well, you're getting these hums because you're not doing the proper what's called windowing. And so basically, when you're working in digital audio, uh, each of these samples these 44,100 samples per second, when you, what you tend to sort of do is record a sample that is slightly longer and then have a little bit of overlap between them. So it's like constantly crossfading between samples so that you can kind of not have the signal just degrade, right? And again, this is like the technical part of how it works. Hmm. So I was sort of told, well, hey, you know, you're getting these hums because you're not doing it right. The point I would make in response to that is that if I had used the windows, the way they work is by, you know, by, by having more information than is needed so that you can make it after the fact. And the way they work is very much as an art, not as a science, right? Mm. So this is one of the many, many, many things that makes recording engineers so special is they know how to do this kind of stuff that to produce the result that they want to hear. In the book, this was actually one of the germs of the entire book, and then it ended up just as a footnote. But I wanted to, I retaught myself trigonometry. Oh, God. Tons of time learning about Fourier's because I had an insight that, you know, in Canada, so Fourier, these transforms are used for ultrasound analyses, which are performed often by nurses. And what I realized when I had to go for an ultrasound, I, I saw the, the nurse you know, adjusting these dials to tune in to see what she was trying to see. Yeah. And I thought that's like, that, that's an art. That's like, you know, that's like trying to tune into something perfectly. She knows what she wants to see. And then, of course, the results don't get reported until the doctor verifies them. Right. So we think about this as a technical operation, but it really is a kind of it's a, it's artful. It requires some this kind of craft skill, at, at the very least, on the part of the, the nurse or the technician who, at least in Canada, are you know, disproportionately women, mostly women of color and are paid much less than the doctors. So, yeah. you know, if we if we were to, to acknowledge the artistry that goes into this, we might have to actually then pay them as more skilled laborers. So we pretend that this is instead just a kind of like flicking, you know, a light switch on or off, which it's not, it's, you know, it's 
and this you can have a better or worse ultrasound technician. Right? And so, yeah, so I was, you know, I was interested in this. And so the point is that this is also something that sound engineers do with this kind of stuff. They can adjust the windowing to, to correct or, or to, to introduce redundancies. I almost said to correct errors, but actually they don't correct windows, don't correct errors. They introduce redundancies so that you can make the decisions that the errors are not audible. So yeah, the only thing I'd sort of say, it's not the case then that the hums, the, so the only other thing I would say is that, you know, these, I, I made the, at the end of the day error, right? I said at the end of the piece, the hums, you know, you hear four different hums, but what's kind of crucial is how you get there. And the hums, you know, we might think, oh yeah, there's a little bit of a kind of room noise or a little bit of something in the recording that then just gets amplified over the course of the hundreds of repetitions, right? But that's not quite right because part of what's happening as a, as a computer computes the audio, the computer is also computing itself computing, right? This, it, it's saying how much, what are my resources that I have to do this computing? Right? This is why if you look at like a progress bar, you know, everybody laughs about this. It goes to 90% in two seconds and then the last 10% takes 10 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Right. That's because the computer, the progress bar shows you how much of the, the file has to, but the computer ha is sort of always in the background doing essentially a progress bar saying how much, how many, how many resources do I have to dedicate to this task? Right. And that's part of what a computer does is it, it prioritizes tasks. So these these remnants are there in the computation. They're just usually so minor to small that they wouldn't become audible. But if you repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, because these the differences in the computation become audible in this way, they are impacted. So if you can repeat it multiple times, it may not arrive at the exact same hum. So it's really, really important actually to, to spend some time thinking about, to me, that was really interesting to think about, right? To think about how a computer Doing what seems like a totally mathematical operation, like literally working with these Fourier integrals, is nonetheless doing so in a way that is it's not like, you know, it's not at a consistent rate. And because it's not at a consistent rate and what it's doing is time-based, you know, this is sort of like they're they're speeding up and slowing down the podcast, except for them it's they're processing, not the podcast. And and you and do you relate this to the work of the theorist and Beatrice Fazzi? who talks about how computation can't be computed. That, that what computation does is kind of take this, this infinite world we live in and process, process that, represent that as finite, finite numbers. And that process is always gonna leave something out, right? There's a, there's a, incomputability involved in the act of computation, which relates to your, your underlying thesis of incommunication, right? Yeah, that's it exactly. I mean, Fatsi is an absolutely fiercely intelligent thinker. And, you know, is also, I think, in many respects, a proper philosopher in a way that I could only aspire to be. So, <laughs> you know, but my one of my favorite, so she is interested in the contingency that she calls it internal to computation. So she's saying, of course, when we compute something, you know, like in the realm of audio, we all know that there's no such thing as a perfect recording because we're, as many scholars have pointed out, you know, what we call a kind of perfect, a recording of perfect fidelity is in fact an idealized listening position. And there's lots of baggage that's built into that about who the ideal listener is. And what I'm trying to draw from 
Fatsi's work on incomputability is to say, well, actually, that's also also the case within within the computer. So this seemingly kind of flat landscape of of, of computation that just seems like it's just mechanistic is in fact textured. Fatsi, my favorite quotation from her is is maybe, and she just sort of says, you know, computation is computation, right? And this is kind of like it seems like okay, that's that's hilariously simple. But her point in saying that is that it is, at least my understanding of her point in saying that, is that we have to think about computation as its own thing, right? We have to, if you want to get at what the, the rationality that is enacted by computers, ha you have to understand that's different than the rationality that is enacted in formal logic, right? It matters that computers are actually enacting this. And the, you know, the the work that she draws on to make that point is the foundational work of, of contemporary computer science. So like people like you know, Alan Turing and mm -hmm. for Turing, this is, you know, uh, the, the kind of key thing is that a computer can in theory compute anything that's computable. So there's a kind of definition there. Of, yeah. Well, computer is this thing that Circularity. Can do what it does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's necessary because without that, the whole thing falls apart. Okay, so maybe a final question about sound and listening. Uh, you suggest that computers organize our listening even when we're not using a computer. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think the most basic answer is that one might think of listening as information acquisition. A lot of times that's, what, that's how it gets talked about, right? Listening as receiving inputs through our ears that are then processed by our brains. So when we think of listening like that, we can miss all of the strange relations and indirections that happen. So even if I, I just think about what happens in my ears when I'm listening, right? Sound waves are conducted through the auditory ossicles, the little bones in my ears, and they are in turn connected to the stapedius muscle, which contracts and expands according to the various stresses that it is under. So even, you know, just to be clear, listening is not the province of the ears. We listen in all sorts of embodied ways, et cetera, et cetera, and technical ways. But even if we were to accept that it's about ears and about information reception, you know, the, the point is that our ears, you know, the same sound will not sound the same ever, right? It just, it, it just simply doesn't because I mean, and if people, if, if people want to test this out, you know, just think about going to walking into a live music venue, you walk in and it sounds super loud and your ears adjust, right? And that's a physical process. And what they're adjusting to is, is changing how receptive or the ways that they are receptive to the vibrations that they're encountering. So maybe most of the time that we hallucinate something of a sound remaining unchanged as it moves across context and through time, again, that's, that, that is a kind of hallucination that is in concert with this idea of communication as information exchange. Yeah, and an interesting thing is happening to our mutual hallucination of communicating via Zoom right now, which is <laughs> your voice is starting to go a little bit robotic every now and then, which I think is totally appropriate <laughs> to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to disclose that I am a cyborg sent here by computers to attest to their strangeness, but um <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if my sons are gaming right now and 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 glitching stuff out or or yeah, just the you've made the internet mad with all your disparaging <laughs> talk. <laughs> but 
That's right. <laughs> Internet, I love you. Great. Well, I, I think we've covered the heart of the book. I hope you feel we have. Is there anything that's kind of been left out in that regard? I guess the one thing that I would try to, again, emphasize about all of this is that it's important for me to try to stay in touch with the reality that the world is not coherent with itself, right? There's no single world. Just like, you know, any theorizing needs, I think, to start by acknowledging that, to start by acknowledging that there is no single perspective that is going to make sense of everything. And so if we, if we start from that place, then I think, and this is what the book tries to just keep in touch with, like it tries, I try to resist saying, this is how things really are, right? Yeah. Try to resist, look, computers seem to be doing this, but really they're doing this other thing. Instead, I try to sort of frame it as they're always doing something else. And so what are the techniques? These are the techniques that I've developed to try to attend to some of those other things that are, are going on. But but nothing is going to kind of neatly package the world into something that makes sense. That's really the important thing to me. And it's not to say that the world is nonsense, but it's it's to, that's that's what's important is how to stay in touch with the actual textures of realities, I would say. So the part of it, again, the, the, the part of us that learns to wake up from our dreams and you know not be mad at, at the person that we just had it that just wronged us in the dream is important, right? Like that's it's worth it's worth having that sociality. But it's also important to not just simply pretend that you're not feeling what you're feeling, because that dream is also real. And not it's not just real because it you know, can be interpreted in certain ways, but it also means, you know, you're probably more likely to feel a bit short with that person that day. So it helps you know, like 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 the irrealities are active in different ways and productive of different things. All right. Well, David, thank you. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much, Mac. I really appreciate it. I look forward to all the future episodes. Too. Thanks. And that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Huge thanks to David Cicchetto for being on the show. You can see transcripts and links to some of the things we've heard and talked about today at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you'd rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or your platform of choice. And we've made it super easy to do. Just go to ratethispodcast.com slash phantom. Today's show was written and edited by me, Mac Haygood. Today's music was also by yours truly. Phantom Power's production team includes Craig Ely, Ravi Krishnaswamy, and Amy Sherseth. Our production coordinator and transcriber is Jason Megacy. Take care and see you next time. Phantom Power.